Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. And, and please f- feel free to interrupt me at any time. Um, so just a very quick s- sort of sketch. Um, the Buddha was probably born around 563 uh, BCE. And of course, any of you who are in the academic world know that uh, the Indians never really kept dates about everything. They're a culture that really lived in uh, the mythological realm. And so they never sort of pinpointed exact dates of when people were born and people died. So sometimes when you try and do exact chronology, it it doesn't really work. Um, But that's around the date of the Buddha. It's an interesting time in human history, especially in India, because it was a time that we saw in the Gangetic Plain the first cities being built. And the first cities were built because there were surplus, agricultural uh, farming was doing really well, there were standing armies, um, and the Buddha's uh, father was likely a mayor, and he had a fairly well-off life. And um, there were also many people who were leaving uh, these towns and who were leaving uh, the traditional uh, caste system and the way that the Brahmin priests uh, ran religious life and heading out into the forests, uh, heading out into the wild and doing this so that they could explore uh, what a contemplative life could be uh, free of ritual free of the gods, and free of the way the gods were mediated uh, by the Brahmin class. And this was all happening at the time of the Buddha. Because I want to talk mostly about the Buddha's awakening, I'm, going to not, I'm not going to focus tonight on the Buddha's early life so much. But uh, when the Buddha was a young man, he wanted to wake up. And he had many different theories about what this meant, just like we all do. Uh, If I say enlightenment, probably your imagination gets filled with ideas that don't have so much to do with this, right? They probably don't have to do with your job or, you know, menstrual cramps, right? Or, you know, kids, 
right? They, usually, our ideas of enlightenment have to do with transcendence, about getting up and out of here. And I think many of us, because we've experienced uh, various degrees of suffering, have tried to escape our lives in various ways. Has anyone here ever tried to escape their life? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it works for short periods of time. Uh, it causes terrible hangovers, <laughs> you know. Um, and so the Buddha was exploring this through yoga practices, and he had two primary yoga teachers. And the last form of yoga he was studying was ascetic practice. And part of that practice was fasting. So what he was doing was he was fasting and he was controlling his food intake. And I don't know if anyone here has fasted a long time or even if you've had an eating disorder. But something happens when you can control what's going into your digestive system where you start to feel pure. And actually there's a kind of inflation with it, a kind of high. And the Buddha was going through this for many, many months. And then he started getting very ill and getting very weak. And the story goes, one day he was walking, uh, feeling faint, and he put his fingers on his navel, and he could feel his lumbar spine. That's how thin he was getting. And then he realized these ascetic practices were not going to get him anywhere, that they were a dead end. And then he was distraught, filled with anxiety, and wanted to know how one can resolve this issue of suffering. So he had a memory of being a small boy. And in this memory, he's lying in a field or an orchard under a tree, and his father's nearby. And he just remembers the light coming through the tree, the sound of his dad nearby, and it's the most peaceful memory he has. So he goes to a tree, he sits down under a tree, and he decides to sit still and follow his breathing until he can resolve his anxiety, which shouldn't be interpreted in like our common psychological sense of just feeling anxious, but a kind of existential anxiety. And I think we all know this, right? You know, for example, if you lose somebody close to you, there's a kind of grief that's there and there's personal loss. And at the same time, underneath that kind of personal level of losing someone, there's also this kind of deeper existential level that gets touched of, of impermanence and, and change. And what do I do with a life? You know? And... Um, uh, before this happened, he had five fellow companions who were his closest friends, who were all on the yogic path with him, and he kind of abandoned them. And they didn't like this very much. Uh, but he really felt that ascetic practice of controlling oneself in the way that he was wasn't going to make him free and wasn't going to bring any kind of lasting contentment of deep contentment. And the way sometimes I interpret this is 
that kind of phase, I think, where we get to in spiritual practice that maybe you know or haven't arrived at yet. But this place where you have to make sure or check in honestly to see if you're motivated by really being honest with what's going on in your life or you're motivated by wanting to feel good. You see? I think I call this the adolescent juncture of a spiritual path. Is, is when you're on a path because you want to feel really good or you're on a path because you really want to fiercely and courageously look at your life. And most of us don't really want to look at our lives. We actually just want to transcend our lives. And this was his kind of awakening at that time that got him to the tree. And it's interesting because he was born under a tree. His earliest memories as a child that are peaceful are under trees. He did almost all of his teaching under trees. He died under a tree. And and I think those of us who live here in Ontario, we shouldn't forget this little detail in his life was this deep love of trees and his practice under trees. And I think sometimes we forget this, especially those of us that have a Buddhist practice, because we mostly do our meditation indoors. And as most of us know who spend time in the wild, that being indoors actually shuts the senses down. You know, we don't, we couldn't predict what's going to happen with the weather tonight because we're not used to checking the wind and how the clouds are moving. Uh, and and we, we really have an indoor life, you know. And so the indoor life tends to be more intellectual, more conceptual. Um, so anyways, this is a detail I think that's important to, to remember is this, that, that the Buddha was living a kind of life outdoors in, in the wild, you know, in the forests. Okay. Um, the Buddha's teachings after his death um, were uh, compiled orally and they were remembered. And the Buddha had a right-hand man named Ananda And after the Buddha's death, people asked Ananda to remember what the Buddha taught. So when you read the collection of the Buddha's teachings, every teaching starts with a phrase that says, I have heard. And that's Ananda's voice saying, well, this might not have been exactly what the Buddha said, but this is what I heard the Buddha say. And this is kind of an interesting thing about the Buddha's teachings especially those of us that like to get really literal, that we don't know what the Buddha taught. We only know what Ananda remembered that the Buddha taught. And I think this helps fundamentalists, you know. Um, Also, the Buddha, when he was alive, said that when he died, he never wanted any of his teachings put down in a language other than the one that was familiar to common people, the common vernacular. So unlike most texts, for those of you who have a yoga background, the texts are all in Sanskrit. Um, The Buddha's teachings were not put down in Sanskrit. They were put down in Pali. Okay, so Pali was like the street version of Sanskrit. So Pali to Sanskrit is like what Italian is to Latin, right? 
They say if you know Sanskrit and then you have a couple martinis, <laughs> then you get Pali. So if you forget the rules, you have Pali. Now, I tried learning Pali, and Sanskrit is much, much easier, I think, than Pali. It's actually easier to learn something with rules than to learn something without rules. Um, and there is no... Pali is interesting because there's no Pali script. So Pali actually just gets written down in the script of the country that the teachings come into. So if you're in Thailand, the Pali canon is in that script. If you're in Burma, the Pali canon is in the Burmese script. It's kind of an interesting thing. And recent scholarship shows that the Pali language might have actually been invented just for putting down the Buddha's teachings, which is kind of interesting too. So um, I won't go too far far down that um, uh, line. So... Um, What I thought we could do is just read together the first sermon of the Buddha. So this is when the Buddha has his awakening experience under the tree. Then he doesn't know what to do with himself for a while because he has this sense that he has had this very deep experience and the way he describes it is it's deep, it's quiet, it's excellent, and it's hard to see. And it's not confined by thought. And then he says, if I were to share this experience with others and they were to not understand, it would be tiring and vexing for me. Has anyone ever had that experience? <laughs> like you have a kind of deep experience, something that really kind of shakes you into a new way of looking at your life. And then... You don't really know if you could share this with someone else. And maybe you, even now in your life, have some private memory that was really beautiful that happened to you, the way you looked into the eyes of a bird or something that happened in a meditation practice or making art or music that you just have never really shared because you don't know even how to start. This is how he felt. Uh, but anyways, he then goes and finds the five companions. Oh, then he goes and looks for the two yoga teachers who he was doing the ascetic practices with because that's who he wants to share his experience with, but they have both passed away. So then he goes and finds his five companions from previous uh, times that he was doing his practices with, and he goes and he shares with them the teaching we're going to read together. Before we jump into it, are there any questions or, or comments before I keep going? Yes? Are there any handouts? I, I made 30 handouts, and um, so obviously there are more people. So uh, you might have to share with somebody. So maybe we can just pass some back and, and we can share together. <laughs> Yeah. Does everybody have one they can follow along now? Yeah. This is good for your social body, especially if you're a shy person. You can get really close to your neighbor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just have a question. So you're saying all the teachings that we have have come through Ananda. Was there nobody else? I mean, all the other people that received 
Yeah, the, the core discourses were remembered by Ananda. But obviously, Buddhism keeps developing, and new texts get written as Buddhism moves to other countries. So when we're talking about the core, core teachings, most of them are remembered by Ananda, or they are um, uh, others remembering stories about the Buddha's previous lives. Or a third category is called the Abhidharma, but in my opinion, that wasn't that came much later. So I would say that the core teachings that I like to rely on when I say this is what the Buddha taught are those that are remembered by Ananda. And you know that those are the teachings remembered by Ananda because at the beginning it says, I have heard. I heard such and such. Yeah. So Ananda remembered a lot. And it's important to remember, too, that the, Buddha, the canon of the Buddha's teachings is massive because uh, the Buddha taught for 50 years. But so that seems like it's a lot for responsibility for one person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, surely there would be some corroboration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably there was. Yeah. You, you know, I listen to these stories as mythology. So, you know, to actually say Ananda remembered every single word... Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I have to say, though, you know, most of the teachers I study with, I've been studying with for, you know, more than 10 years or 15 years. And I remember almost everything they say. Because sometimes when you're in the zone you and you hear them say the same thing over and over and they have a rhythm to their teaching, um, especially if you're chanting, you just remember what they say. So it's amazing in the oral tradition, and we know this not just in Buddhism, but in any oral tradition, how the recollection is much more reliable in oral traditions than in uh, documented traditions, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yes? It's, it's also less, there's less concern about word for word remembering and uh-huh. more of the spirit, the sense of what was said. Mm-hmm. And uh, so don't get fixed on, you know, he said this, this, and this, and yeah. that, but he said yeah. this. Yeah. 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 I don't want to go too far into it because I want to actually get to the, yeah. the teaching, <laughs> but, you know, the academic in me wants to really keep going with this. <laughs> yes? What was he teaching too? Um, in this particular... Sutta that we're going to look at. He was teaching. He was just talking to the five companions. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's supposedly his first sermon, and that, there were five people there. But over time, it grows to over a thousand. Yeah. Northern India. Yeah. Yeah. This. This. Um, particular uh, sutta happens at Deer Park. Um, and uh, if you want details about that, Angela was just there. Mm-hmm. You went to Deer Park, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you can go to all these places. Yeah. <laughs> They're still there. Okay. So here, here is the sutta. Sutta, for those of you who know the Sanskrit, is, is the Pali word for sutra. This is what I heard. So, again, this is Ananda. 
The Buddha was staying at Varanasi in, in the Deer Park at Isipatana. He addressed this group of five. So those were the five companions for before. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. So he's saying a, a person who's gone forth, who, who's taken the path he's taken, who's, who's awakened in the way he's awakened, does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless. And mortification, so that's referring to his... So in the way he's talking to hedonism, on the one hand, and on the other hand, rigid asceticism. And mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It's a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches. Appropriate seeing, appropriate thinking, appropriate talking, appropriate acting, appropriate working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. So I'll just stop it. So I think that this is a pretty radical teaching because for those of us who have been brought up in the Abrahamic traditions, to be somebody who has had an awakening that's religious, what you've awoken to is eternal. It's God, it's outside time, it's unconditioned, it's beyond form. Uh, what we awaken to is something that transcends our life. Yeah, We become one with God. We have a relationship with something eternal. And here the Buddha is saying that what I have awoken to is actually a path. And the path has eight branches. Seeing, thinking, so it's very active. Talking, acting, working. So for those of you who have this idea that the Buddha was this recluse who sat under the tree for the rest of his life and wandered around begging for money, uh, who, who never really dropped into, into life, I think we have a model here not of a dropout, but a drop-in. Somebody who awakens to a way of living that includes seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. Does this make sense? Yeah. Then he says, this is suffering. So he's going to define dukkha, suffering. Birth is painful. Does anybody remember? <laughs> Aging is painful. I was just in Thailand, and in Thailand, one of the elder teachers who's passed away now that became very famous for teaching Westerners is Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah used to say, it's very hard to teach the Dharma to young people but it's really good to teach it to elderly people because they really understand that aging is suffering teaching. Which is really interesting, I think. 
Uh, I have a friend who's very elderly. And, and when I'm with her, one of the feelings I really get around her is that being really old really sucks. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons is, is because her body really hurts all the time. Everything hurts. And also when you're young, you have a future. You have this thing you carry with you of a future. And when you're very, very old, you don't have a future in the same way. And so to become happy requires something different than optimism. And so this, this is a teaching that's easily overlooked, like aging is painful. But the Buddha is saying here is, there is something in aging that is dukkha, that's suffering. He's not saying aging is only suffering, but he's saying there is something about aging that is suffering. You see? Then he says, uh, death is painful. Encountering what's not dear is painful. Separation from what's dear is painful. I think we all know that one, right? What's more painful than losing someone you really, really love? Like when, when, a, when a parent loses a child. When your, your child doesn't live longer than you. Or just when you're in love with somebody and then it ends. Has anyone had this before? No? Okay, well apparently it happens in the city. You care about somebody so much and then you lose them. They die or maybe the relationship doesn't work. And then you hate them for a while and then after the hate settles and you remember what was redeeming about your love, it's really, really painful, actually. It's so much easier just to hate someone than to remember how much you really loved somebody. So the Buddha, I think, is spot on here. What's dukkha? It's uh, encountering what's not dear and separation from what is dear is really, really painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. And I would add to the list, for some people, getting what one wants. <laughs> right? Some people, like especially people really caught in addiction, actually when, when you really get what you want, it's actually painful. Those of you in here who are psychotherapists, you know this. You know, when, when somebody comes to you and, and you really give them what they need, sometimes they'll run away. It's a strange paradox because they're not used to being able to receive uh, something really nourishing. And, and this is dukkha. This is, this is painful. Uh, and then he just sums it up in saying the psychophysical, so our psycho, like being psychological and physical being is painful. Then he says, and this is craving. What's craving? Craving is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed. 
obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence, craving for Facebook. <laughs> the, the, the two I want to uh, just focus on here, because stimulation is obvious, there's a, good, there's a very interesting detail here. Craving for existence, right? The way we, we crave to have an identity to be seen, but also craving for non-existence. So a lot of commentators uh, tr translate this as suicide, right? That, that place that's suffering in us where we're craving to die. But I think that's not exactly what the Buddha is saying. I think he's taking a stab here at religion, craving for the eternal, craving for something beyond our identity. And I think you see this with a lot of people who first come to meditation practice, who say, I just want to empty my mind so I don't exist. And I think that's what he means, craving for non-existence. Does anybody ever want this? You know, just like, just a day, just I don't want to exist today. Right? Those are the days we usually do something really stupid. <laughs> um, this is cessation. So for yogis, the term here is niroda. The traceless fading away and cessation of craving, the letting go of craving, abandoning craving, freedom and independence from craving. And then he says, and this is the path. Eight branches. Appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. So, let's sum up, because what he's covered is called the Four Noble Truths. You'll notice here that the Buddha does not call this the Four Noble Truths. People come later and sum up a dialogue as the Four Noble Truths. But I think one thing that's really important here, does anybody here do Zen practice at all? No. What's really important here, and I think that I like to remember, is that what we're, what we're learning here, what we're reading here is a dialogue that happened. Not some teaching he gave like here's four things to follow, here's eight things to follow. It's a dialogue. And if you sum up the dialogue, it's called the Four Noble Truths. And usually people translate the first noble truth as life is suffering. And you can see how it's kind of easy to do that. And most people say, I, like, how could I ever get into Buddhism? My mom says this. It's like, if the main teaching is that life is suffering. It's so, like, it's so, what a downer. You know? That's for people who wear black. Um, the Buddha is not saying that life is suffering. The core teaching is fully no suffering. Fully no suffering. Most of us are trying to transcend 
our lives. When we're suffering, we go online. We eat away our suffering. We shop away our suffering. And we don't really know sadness. We don't know how to sit in the middle of loneliness. How to sit in the middle of grief. And we live in an anxious culture that can't sit still. And on top of that, we have a kind of uh, philosophy in our medical system that when there is pain, you get rid of it as fast as possible. And this gets related, I think, very much to capitalism, which is not only to get rid of your pain, but then to get back to work as fast as possible. And we actually don't have a lot of room in our culture if someone can't work. What do we do with them? <laughs> right? You even see this pressure a lot on mothers, right? Like you, someone has a baby and very quickly, you know, there's like this competition of how fast they can get back to work again. You know? And I think we have a, such a high level of functioning that I think it's hard sometimes to fall apart. And to feel that, like, there's going to be a net there, you know. And so one of the first teachings of the Buddha is to, to fully know suffering. And he felt in his ascetic practices that that way of practicing wasn't going to open him up to really knowing his life. Because he was trying to get out of his body. But he's saying here to Fully, fully know suffering. Yeah. I had a tea with a friend of mine this uh, week who I haven't seen since we were uh, 12. And we bumped into each other and then the next day we had tea together. And when we were 12, we were best friends uh, well, we were a little younger. We were best friends. And um, I hung out at his house every day after school, and we skateboarded uh, together. And I loved his dad, so I hung out mostly at his dad with, with him and his dad. And his dad taught us how to use saws and build skateboard ramps. And then his dad got sick and died within three months. And then uh, the family sold the house and moved out of the neighborhood, and then I never saw him again. And so he's always with me, you know, and especially because we parted at the time that his father died. So then we had tea, and it turns out that he's had a terrible uh, time in his life. Uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, s such a difficult time. And how he talked about it was just, he, he, he's, he's clean now. But he was saying how... He just didn't have any support. He ended up dropping out of high school. He didn't know who to talk to. And we all know this story. And maybe we all have versions of this story in, in our life. Maybe it's why we're here. And so he said, I really want to come. I saw you online, and I really want to come to your meditation class because I, I think that would be really good. And I, I was just so happy you know, to, to hear that. But how many years, you know, it took him to, to go through that to actually see that he can't escape 
And it's hard to learn that lesson that you can't transcend your body, your life. Craving non-existence. Craving transcendence. So, the first teaching here is fully no suffering. Does this make sense to you? Yeah? I'm trying to debunk a little bit this idea that the Buddha taught that life is a bummer. The second teaching is letting go of craving. Why? Craving is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed. Obsessively indulging in this and that, it leads to stimulation, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. Most Buddhists interpret this as you should not you, you should let go of craving because it causes suffering. And I think that's true. We all could agree that's true. But that's not what the Buddha is saying here. The Buddha is saying that the reason why craving is bad is not because it shuts down, it, it is not because it leads to suffering, is because it closes down the path. It closes down, um, where's the list? Seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. In other words, what's the problem with craving? Is that when you're caught in craving, you can't see the path. You can't see. You can't work. You can't try. You're not creative. You're not in your life. You can't communicate. And I would add to this, you can't love. Because love only appears in the absence of craving, right? Has anyone here ever been in a relationship where they're trying to fix the other person? Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like we're craving another version of them. You're not the person, you know. Yeah. Or craving them to get out of my life. And then we want everything around us to change. Then he says, so the first noble truth, fully no craving. Second noble truth, let go, fully no suffering. Second noble truth, let go of craving. Third noble truth, the experience of the cessation of craving. And all of us meditators know this. Just to be sitting still day after day and then just having a moment of not wanting things to be different. When we practice meditation, you sit still and you follow your breathing and you realize very quickly you're not following your breathing. You're following thoughts and not just thoughts, but thoughts are actually lubricated by craving, right? Craving a narrative even, right? And this is an interesting in meditation practice, even when you're craving peace, right? Even when you're craving quiet, it's still a kind of contraction. And it's the opposite of loving. It's the opposite of just... um, Flowering. 
I, I, I like looking at the Buddha on the altar because I always look at the Buddha and feel that the Buddha is just offering himself. And in my home, I always have a fresh flower beside the Buddha. And I always have this feeling like the Buddha is like a flower and he is just reminding me to just to offer myself. Oh, sadness. And you make your body like a flower. Oh, you offer yourself madness you know, to, to offer yourself. Oh, madness. You see? Just to really be in your life. You see? And then the Buddha offers a fourth noble truth, which is not just letting go of sensation, but doing this as a practice, and the practice is called the Eightfold Path, which is appropriate seeing, appropriate thinking, appropriate talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. And I've summed this up for you in your, in your handout. And this can be translated as tasks. So, the first noble truth as a task. Do you see this at the bottom of your page? Suffering is to be fully known. Craving is to be let go of. Cessation is to be experienced and the path is to be cultivated. Then the Buddha says later on, what I woke up to are these truths. These truths. So I feel that this is uh, very radical as a spiritual practice because it's a material practice. It's more a practice of materialism than spirituality because it's a practice of fully dropping into the fabric of one's body, of what one feels, and to let go of the craving for an eternal that is separate from the conditioned. You see, the Buddha woke up to suffering and the path. He didn't wake up to something that solves it, that's outside of our lives. That he wants us to enter into our lives to solve this issue of discontent. So that's a bit of a mind trap for those of us who have an idea that spiritual practice is getting somewhere. <laughs> you know. So before we keep going, um, what, what do you think? What, what's happening for you as you, as you hear this?
body or the mind propelling us to shift or just move in a different direction. Right, like is it something to get rid of? Yeah. Most of the time when we feel discontent, what do we do? There's aversion. But what do you do? Does anyone here feel discontent today? Yes? I definitely felt discontent today. I had to deal with things with respect to my children. Uh-huh. And um, we don't operate on the same plane. Uh-huh. Yeah. Dynamic. Yeah. And it's it's very very challenging. Yeah. So it's it's approaches like this that I try and employ while I'm in the heat of the moment to yeah. dial it down and not you know allow my inner dialogue, my monkey brain, whatever you want to call it, to mm. take over and react without being yeah. thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. There's this line I like. You can always leave a husband, but you can never leave an ex-husband. <laughs> And when you feel the discontent arising, can you just, like, what happens? Well, physically, I get yeah. heat. Heat. Heat and yeah. burning in my chest cavity. Yeah. And I usually block, I block that area. Yeah. Um, because it's like an energy hook. Yeah. It's getting in and stirring me up. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy. I have a hot, very hot temper. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's very easy for me to just let it out and not uh, try and understand what's motivating me. From yeah. Me. Yeah. Because it's usually, you yeah. <laughs> know, Yeah. So, so the Buddha would say, where did I put it? Um, uh, to, to open to that situation, you need eight different limbs. The first one is appropriate seeing. Sometimes this gets translated as right view, which I don't like. But having an appropriate view, like to be able to see what's going on, not just be uh, controlled by it. Then he says, appropriate thinking, to be able to watch your own mind. And, and actually be able to see what you're thinking and not just act out of habitual thinking. Then, appropriate talking. Mindfulness of speech. It's interesting that talking is way up in the front of the path. Like really to watch how you're speaking. And that's not just to your husband, ex-husband, but also to yourself. I'm such an idiot. I married him. You know, I can't do, you know, whatever. Um, appropriate acting, working, trying, recollecting, which is mindfulness. Um, in other words, coming back into the moment, concentrating. So, in other words, your 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 awakening is a is not a noun; it's it's a process. Enlightenment is not a place; it's the process of awakening in each moment. You see. So in that moment when you're hooked, how do you wake up in that moment? And this is where we need a practice. You know? yeah. So someone else.
There was a hand up at the back somewhere. Yeah. I wasn't really so much on the discontent question. You probably didn't have that today. The question for me is more about the use of the word suffering. And this has been an obstacle for me to understand. Is that suffering to some extent is relevant? I mean, there are people who are suffering in ways that we would probably imagine as physically, mentally painful. And then there are people who presumably are very well off and are suffering relative to their expectations. And my instinct is the two are very different. But it doesn't sound as if this is treating this differently. Perhaps I've got that wrong, but that's just a question that I'd like your observation. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you could say that at, at that psychological level, it's not treating them as different. This can be read in a social way and in an economic way where you would consider them different. But I think purely in the psychological way he's talking about, he's just talking about the nature of suffering. And when you look at suffering, one of the things you see in it is the craving to not be suffering. Like, for example, um, the suffering that comes from not suffering. The suffering that comes from not wanting to be in your suffering. Which is addiction. Right? There's discontent, and we don't want to be in it. So, you know, uh, we use whatever... Uh, um, for me right now, it's raw cacao. Like, I love chocolate these days, you know. Um, when, when I came back from Thailand, I didn't, I didn't sleep very well. So, so, so uh, when I finally got my sleep back, I started eating a little bit of chocolate every day. And then, like, I have a sore throat, so I didn't eat chocolate two days ago. And all afternoon, it was like... I was like a monster. <laughs> and it took me a while to remember, oh yeah, this is the time I eat chocolate. And I had some in my fridge, but I didn't want to eat it because my throat was sore. But there was real craving there. And it was kind of, you know, really interesting uh, to, to watch that. And that's minor. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to see the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles uh, uh, several years ago now. And he told this story about how every day he would take the, his ride would take him past the, I forgot what street it is where all the electronic shops are, on his way to where he was teaching. And he said, like, by the fifth or sixth day, he said, I didn't know what was in any of those windows, but I really wanted one. <laughs> so I think you also, you can't really separate the, the social and advertising and economic conditions. Um, if they give rise to suffering, then they need to be worked with. It's not just your own heart. That's not enough. So, 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 so it's at multiple levels. I think some people like to interpret this as like, it has nothing to do with the world out there. Suffering's all just what you do in your mind. And I would say that would be taking the teaching way, way too Poverty is bad because it causes suffering. So uh, we haven't talked about this so much tonight, but eventually you also go to work on the suffering of others, not just your own suffering. And that's where the social peace really comes in. Yeah. Oh, there's one more, one more hand here and then. Yes, sir. Um, okay, so 
invite and can use your life, then what about the whole notion of samsara and, yeah. you know, if you not teach about trying to escape in a cycle of birth and death uh -huh. and rebirth uh -huh. upon attaining enlightenment, like how does that yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this is a big debate. Um, the, the Buddha um, taught a teaching called dependent origination, which is that uh, things arise in conditions and that nothing is born outside of conditions. So anything that exists, exists interconnected with everything else. And you can't have a wall here without drywall, without architects, without a floor. You can't have a ceiling without a wall. Everything is interdependent at such a deep level that there's no such thing even as a thing. Everything is also interdependent with every other thing. So um, he, he really stressed this as a core teaching, which we're not going to get into so much tonight. And... That teaching seems at odds with um, teachings that there are things that are unconditioned. Because if everything's conditioned, then how can you have something that's unconditioned? So what would un be unconditioned? The basic idea the Buddha tends to teach in the early days is that what's unconditioned is just your imagination. You can imagine something unconditioned, but you can't find anything unconditioned. This makes sense. So, it's, so my interpretation is that what was radical about the Buddha's teaching is this focus on waking up to the conditioned. And it seems like uh, after the Buddha's death, through the back door, this other idea of the unconditioned comes back again. Because that was the vocabulary of India at that time. So, for example, if you ever learn uh, Tibetan Buddhism, you learn about uh, the subtle body, you learn about um, um, the unconditioned. But I don't think that was one of the Buddha's early teachings. That's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but nobody, there's no way of knowing. Yeah. Um, so I think it's safer to say that the Buddha's focus was on conditional life, samsara, and not on a kind of unconditional godhead uh, that solves our samsaric situation, if that makes sense to you. Did you catch all that? Yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if everything is conditioned, so if your identity is, so if all we are are these conditioned uh, elements, stories, uh, anybody who's studied any philosophy knows we're socially constructed, you know, our gender's constructed, or everything's constructed, even you don't even come into the world clean. You come into the world with all this like DNA stuff, right? You don't even need a the past life theory anymore because it's like DNA, man. <laughs> um, so if all of this is conditioned 
and this is what we're waking up to, then when you die, what gets reborn? And the only way to have a soul that gets reborn is if you have a theory that underneath all of that conditioning, you have something that's unchanging. And that would go against what the Buddha taught. So, for example, if I say, you know, if you eat meat, then you're going to be reborn as a cow. And you'll be this, like, you'll have this cow face and, right? That goes against the Buddha's teachings that everything is conditioned because it adds to it this idea that, well, actually, underneath all that conditioning, there's really a you there that is deeper. And the Buddha, this isn't part of the Buddha's teaching. And this is the thing that makes the Buddha uniquely different than the Abrahamic religions. Is not that he denies God or denies a soul, but that he thinks that that's a story we tell. And it's a story we tell to keep some idea of permanence. That there's a deeper you underneath the you that goes on, that's unconditioned. We got away from the sutta a little bit. Yeah. Oh, wait, you were going to go, and then you were going to go. Stephen, while you were talking, I thought to myself, what's the difference between craving and seeking? Uh Uh-huh. And I just popped it in my head at the time. It's just seeking, behind seeking there's a craving, I guess. Yeah. But the Buddha was seeking answers to begin with. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it didn't work, did it? No. (laughs) No, he he had to sit still. But still, still, your mind still is seeking answers. Uh-huh. That's why we have to meditate. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, th- I mean, this is the thing about... You know, I, I can say, you know, as someone who teaches meditation, that the hardest students to work with are the ones really seeking. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you teach them a technique, it's to find an answer. So the seeking... So the seeking is a craving, I would say. And, and, and we have to work on letting go of that craving. Yeah. And the craving can be so subtle. Even the Buddha says the craving for non-existence. The craving to not have cravings. Oh, I just don't want any cravings anymore. <laughs> yes, there was a hand up there. How would you interpret Appropriate. Appropriate. How would you interpret appropriate? (laughs) I would interpret it that that which isn't destructive. That's good. I mean, the the way that I use the term appropriate is is something that's not rigid, Mm. right? So sometimes this is translated as right seeing, like right view, and it drives me nuts because there's a sense like there is a right view in this situation. So that's why I like this translation, which actually comes from Stephen Batchelor, of an appropriate view, to be able to shift and to shift and to shift. Not having a rigid view, even of oneself. 
Suffering occurs when we have rigid views. How many people, have you ever had this in your life where like you had something happen where you suddenly saw a version of yourself that you had (laughs) held on to rigidly? This was a, a theory that I started thinking about last year a lot is that that maybe one of the most profound experiences any of us can have in our life is actually just just having the ability to to change our mind about something where we've been rigid. Like to have that kind of flexibility where you can see some way you're, you're, you've been seeing yourself and then let that just be there and realize that was just a pair of glasses you were wearing. That's not actually how you are. That's why meditation practice is so powerful for people who have a lot of self-judgment. Because people who suffer from a lot of self-judgment, because that's such a cognitive groove, when they see themselves judging themselves, they then judge themselves. (laughs) Right? So the mindfulness practice is being quiet enough that you can just see self-judgment from the place behind self-judgment. And this is like a very profound thing. And so in our retreats, when I'm working with students, this is what I'm working with students around, is pushing and pulling them in different ways to to see how they're seeing their experience. Uh Uh-huh. So I would say this is right view, or right seeing, or appropriate seeing. It doesn't mean, like, that there's an appropriate way to see the situation. (laughs) like good manners or something. You know? yeah. Some of you might know, we, we have someone who practices with us who's a journalist. and she was, um, she was in Israel, and she got onto a bus that got bombed. And so immediately she started writing the story. She knew the story, right? Right? You know, the bombers from Palestine, the victims are Israeli. You know, she had the whole story. And then she had this realization, like, something just fell away. And she just had this realization that she wasn't seeing what was going on. And then she just felt like this impact of everyone suffering. The bloody people on the bus, the cops, all the paramedics on the scene, the families on both. She just saw everybody suffering. And she couldn't write the story. And she actually uh, then became a much, much better writer, actually, because she started talking about the stories she was seeing in the Middle East in a way more complex fashion. Right? So this is appropriate seeing, right? Which is, we would translate in Zen practice, we call this not knowing, which means giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others. And I, I would say that the place this is most helpful in your life is when you're angry. Because when you're angry, usually you have a rigid view that you're right and they're wrong. 
and you have a rigid view. <laughs> Are you writing this down? Um. When I'm angry, I have a rigid view. <laughs> Yeah. These are such good questions. This is so exciting. Uh, yeah. Usually that's uh huh. Working is a translation of of the term livelihood. Appropriate livelihood. Yeah. Was anybody here last Friday night at Octopus Garden? Yeah. Yeah. I gave a talk on this. Exactly this. Uh, r appropriate use of money. The, the Buddha uh, thought that part of one's path had to include their livelihood. This is again another debunking of this idea that like you're a dropout if you're a Buddhist. <coughs> appropriate livelihood. Um, he thought that um, uh, there were certain professions that he, he didn't think were appropriate. Um, he didn't think much about politics. Uh, he thought that uh, social change could happen in more efficient ways outside of politics, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, slaughtering of animals, uh, trading of human life. Uh, he wanted people to use money where they lived within their means and he didn't want people who are pursuing his path to live with any debt. He also didn't want lay people in his community to uh, be in contact with money that had been in contact with arms. Imagine trying to put these two together in our culture right now. Not having debt? <laughs> I, I uh, taught a retreat over the New Year's. This is a little digression, but it's related. Many of you were on the retreat. We do a silent retreat every New Year's. And um, I work with a student who's very wealthy who couldn't come on the retreat. And so he said, oh, I noticed that the retreat that you're teaching, it, the theme is forgiveness. And I don't really have anyone in my life that I really need to forgive. So I'm not coming on the retreat. But it's a really good topic. <laughs> so then he, he came back a week later and said, you know, I've really been thinking about, because uh, I talked to him a lot about appropriate livelihood, because he hates his job. And his job uh, hurts the lives of many people, actually. And he knows this. And... He came a week later and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about forgiveness and I had this realization that a lot of people owe me money and I don't really need all the money that's owed to me. And some people who don't have a lot of money who owe me money, they have a terrible time in their life because they owe me money. And this is really bad. I'm causing suffering to people. And actually, they owe me money for reasons that are not really their fault. 
Like, they didn't do anything stupid. They just owe me a lot of money now. So then he said, so I'm, there's this one person in particular who said, I'm going to forgive her debt. That's how I'm going to practice forgiveness. I'm going to forgive her debt. And then he told me, uh, this was just the day before we went on the retreat, so I talked about this on the retreat, but he said to me, when I met her and I told her that she didn't have to pay me back, her face was so young. And he just kept saying, you should have seen the expression on her face and how it changed. So think about that in our life. Like in our, in our uh, country. How many young people have so much crushing debt? And how nice it would be to have a jubilee year where all those young people could be forgiven of their debt. And then they could like get to work and do the creative stuff we need young people to do in our country, you know. Just just forgive half of them. Does anyone here have a lot of debt? Yeah, anybody? Yeah. So so this is something the Buddha taught: not having a lot of debt. Um, he talked about uh, using twenty five percent of your income for consumption. That includes rent and food. 25% of your income should be saved for emergency. And 50% of your income should be reinvested in your education and in your line of work. For those of you in business, that's a very high level of reinvestment. For those of you who are yoga teachers, 50% of your income should be spent on training. And that, so, and that 25, 25, 50 was what he called a balanced livelihood. So, that, so that's what he meant by appropriate working. And, and this is interesting to me because, you know, when I trained as a psychologist, we never learned how to talk to our clients about this stuff. But so much of people's suffering comes from having meaningless jobs or having jobs where... You know, in the nursing field, I, I read a few years ago that the highest rate of burnout in nursing is from something called moral outrage. Have you heard of this? This is when your ethics don't line up with the ethics of your institution. So we feel this. Yeah? And... So the Buddha said that uh, a spiritual path has to include an appropriate livelihood. And how do you measure that? Well, poverty is really bad because you can't practice, because you don't have leisure time. But, and it's not saying poverty is your fault. It's just saying, so we all have to work so that there isn't so much poverty, so more people can have a practice. What's the practice? Appropriate livelihood, doing work that's meaningful. Appropriate effort, appropriate action. So you can hear in all this, it's a model of ethics, actually. 
So could we take a two-minute break and just stretch our legs and have a smoke or whatever? (laughs) 